Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, illumine your inspired word for us now, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated as grades four to six make their way to the lobby. This third Sunday of Advent is known as Gaudete Sunday, which Gaudete is Latin for rejoice, which is the command to be joyful or to have joy. Now, for some of us, the very call to rejoice or to have joy is already discouraging because we feel like we don't have it and we don't know how to get it. The reality is is that experiencing joy is a struggle for many. It's often a struggle for me. So what I'd like to do today is to try to encourage us by aiming to answer two main questions that arise out of our first reading from 1 Thessalonians. And these are the two questions that we're going to seek to answer, God willing. Number one, what is Christian joy? And number two, how do we begin to cultivate Christian joy? So first, what is Christian joy? Well, I think it's easier to actually start with what Christian joy is not. I want to suggest that Christian joy is not happiness. Look at verse 16 of the text. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. That is, have joy at all times in all circumstances. Happiness comes from the old English word hap, which means chance or fortune, or luck. Happy literally means lucky, favored by fortune, being in advantageous circumstances, prosperous, the result of events turning out well. So happiness is related to happenstance. What happens to us? Circumstances. So if what happens to us and our loved ones is good and fortunate and we like it, we are happy. And if what happens is not good and not fortunate, then we are unhappy. Joy, on the other hand, can't be related to what happens because we're exhorted to rejoice always, always. Have joy at all times, in all circumstances. So if Christian happiness isn't joy, what is it? (laughs) I'll take a stab at it. I think the answer comes in the word itself. In the Greek, the word for joy is very closely related to the word for grace. It has the same root. So if happiness is a response to happenstance, joy is a response to grace. Joy is not happiness, but graciness, to coin a phrase. Literally, to rejoice is to be conscious of God's grace or favor. In short, joy is grace recognized. Grace recognized. We see this definition of joy at work when Barnabas arrives in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. The text says that when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. When he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. Now, by this definition... Joy is not necessarily the absence of sadness or anxiety or other negative emotions. In fact, Christian joy 
can and very often does coexist with these feelings. For example, Matthew 28, the women at the tomb of Jesus encounter an angel who announces the good news to them that Jesus has risen and that he's gone ahead of them into Galilee. Listen to what the text says. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Afraid, yet filled with joy. They're going, they coexist. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As a priest, I have often had the honor of being in hospice with the dying and their families. A few months ago, I was with a beloved St. Timothy's parishioner named Martha. In hospice with Martha's children and grandchildren around, I began to read the story about the biblical character of Martha at the tomb of her, her brother, Lazarus. In the face of death, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, Martha replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Even now, it's difficult to get those words out. I got through that part okay in, the, in hospice, but when I got to the anointing and the prayers of commendation, I could hardly get the words out through the tears. This is what we pray. Into your hands, O merciful Savior, we commend your servant Martha. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a sheep of your own fold, a lamb of your own flock, a sinner of your own redeeming. Receive her into the arms of your mercy, into the blessed rest of everlasting peace, and into the glorious company of the saints in light. I couldn't get through that without tears. And when I got into my car, I wept aloud. But they weren't just tears of sadness. There were certainly tears of sadness, no question about it. They were there. But there was something else going on. In those moments with the dying, the veil between heaven and earth is so thin, and the reality of God's grace is so potent and palatable, palpable. There was such clarity to me that Martha belonged to the Lord, that she was his, and that she was very shortly going to be absent from the body, but present with him. And I was on the doorstep with her, on the threshold. The tears were as much related to that sense as they were to the sadness. What was that sense? It was grace recognized. That is Christian joy. Christian joy. And it coexisted with great sadness in the face of death. So what is Christian joy? It is something like an abiding consciousness of God's grace or favor, independent from and in the midst of our circumstances and even other feelings. Should I say that again? Joy is something like an abiding consciousness of God's grace or favor, independent from and in the midst of our circumstances and even other feelings. Christian joy is experienced in the midst of sorrow, like the bright pink candle in the midst of the dark purple ones. You might be thinking, okay, 
but that's really unsatisfying. I want joy without fear and sadness. And to that, I would simply say, I do too. I do too. But as long as sin and death remain in this world, so too will sorrow and fear. There will be a day when Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things will have passed away. But that day won't be until he comes. So we cry the cry of Advent. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come. So that's an attempt at defining Christian joy. On to the second question. How do we begin to cultivate Christian joy? Well, I don't think this is as straightforward as just choosing joy. Why? Because the scriptures describe joy as both a fruit or the result of something else and a gift. It's the result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. In fact, it's the second one on that list from Galatians that we learned in Sunday school. You know, if you grew up in Sunday school, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy is the second one. It's also a gift. To the Romans, Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, which means that it comes from outside of us. It's not proper to us, it's proper to someone else, and we receive it as a gift. So how can it be a fruit and a gift, but also a command? In our text today, we're exhorted to rejoice always. Once again, we come to a classic Christian paradox. Everything we have, our very existence and our salvation is a gift from God. But we're not passive robot recipients of his gift. Joy is a gift, but Paul says, remember he says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame the gift of God. So we can't just choose joy independently of God, but we can stoke it. We can feed it. We can blow on it. We can cultivate it. How? Well, I'm going to stick close to our text today. Our text gives us a number of ways, and I'm going to highlight three this morning. The first comes in verse 17. Pray continually. Pray continually. To pray is to lift our hearts and minds to God. So if we, if we want what only God can give, we have to go to God. C.S. Lewis wrote, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. So praying continually is getting into the source of joy. How do we pray continually? Well, this is a big topic, and we could spend the rest of the sermon talking about prayer. I'm not an expert in prayer by any means, but I'm going to give you one example of how to pray continually. There's lots of ways to pray continually, but I'm going to give you one example, and that is to pray small bits of Scripture all day, throughout the day. The Psalms are a great resource for this. In fact, um, this morning, I, was, I, I told my wife, I said, honey, I'm feeling so anxious today. I was, and when, I don't know how you feel when you're anxious, but when I get anxious, um, my body starts to tell me I'm anxious by a number of different ways. First is I get cold. Like I start to get cold and I can't get warm. Other is that my appetite goes away and I can't, you know, I'm not hungry. So I'm like, okay, I'm anxious. So what do I do? I try to change my circumstances. 
I have a hot bowl of porridge, I go have a hot shower, and I'm like, I'm going to change my external circumstances to stop being anxious. And then I thought to myself, you dum-dum. Why don't you do what you're going to tell your congregation to do in your sermon this morning? You ding-dong. So I thought, okay, so I'm standing in the hot shower, and I, and I start to speak the words from the Psalms. And I'm sorry, Phil, but this is going to be in King James, because that's my heart language. <laughs> Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me. <laughs> and, and I can feel the joy even now in the midst of my anxiety, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because there's no evil to fear? No. Why? Because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We don't have to stay in the Psalms. What, what if we're feeling shame? Sometimes we feel shame. We feel uh, guilt. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in me. Who's trying to live not according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So that's one way that we can cultivate joy is to read little chunks of scripture throughout the day. And when we pray continually, especially when we pray scripture, we're turning our hearts and minds to the source of joy. The second way we cultivate joy, according to our text, comes in verse 18. And this is a, man, is this ever a tough one? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances. Man, this one's hard. But I think this is a specifically Christian form of thanksgiving, and so it's so countercultural. We're called to give thanks not only for pleasant things in pleasant times, but in all circumstances. Reminds me of... Uh, Paul in, in the Philippian jail singing hymns, right? And in the Christian view, even adversity is a gift from the Lord. Sometimes, according to his mysterious and gracious will that we do not understand, he allows difficulties, and this is in fact a normal part of the Christian life. As Peter says, fiery trials should not be strange or unexpected for us. They're par for the course. As Jesus went to the cross before he was glorified. So every Christian is called to pick up our cross, and each of our cross looks a little different. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, which recounts the Lord's care for Israel in the desert. It says, The Lord humbled you and let you hunger. Now you think, that's not loving. Lord, why would you let us hunger? The, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. 
nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that, man does, that human beings do not live by bread alone, but they live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the Lord may let us hunger so that he can feed us with manna, that is, himself, the bread from heaven. Out of love for us, he may stop us from feeding on things that don't nourish us spiritually. And fasting is actually one way that we voluntarily step into this phenomenon. We say no to good things for a time in order to be fed by God. Because it's a sad truth that when we are full and satisfied and face no difficulties, we often forget the Lord and our need for him. And this ultimately is not good for us because it severs us from our source and leaves us open to destructive influences and our own destructive appetites. Listen to Deuteronomy again. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, in other words, that when things are going really well for you, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I dare say in the West, we're particularly prone to this temptation. But it's not just material poverty that turns us to God. Perhaps we struggle with anxiety or worry or mental health or loneliness or physical health or real challenges in our relationships. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I would not wish these on myself or anybody. I do not want adversity for myself or for you. And in fact, as Christians, when we face adversity, we, we love one another by trying to relieve that adversity. So that's true. How can we relieve the suffering? How can we mitigate the suffering? But there's a truth that goes along with that. And that is, as Christians, we are called to be thankful even for adversity because it keeps us utterly dependent upon God. Without our fears and struggles and shortcomings, trials, we wouldn't need to sing I need thee every hour. So if I ask myself, when do I pray the most? The answer always is, when I'm the most anxious. When do I pray the most? When I'm the most anxious. My fear brings me to my knees, and so it is truly a gift. Not fun. Not fun. But a gift. So we cultivate joy by being thankful in all circumstances, an attitude peculiar to Christians, I think. And finally, we cultivate Christian joy according to verse 22. Reject every kind of evil. Reject every kind of evil. Here we see the crucial connection between joy and obedience. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 15. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. See the connection he makes there between keep my commands and joy. Joy and obedience go together. That's why Paul exhorts us to reject every kind of evil. One of the things I think we are prone to do as sinful humans is this. We need joy. We want joy. What we really want is joy, but we reach for pleasure instead. Now, pleasure in and of itself is not bad. I'm going to be very clear about that. In fact, it's good. 
when received with gratitude and used according to God's design, the pleasures of this world, food, drink, sex, other comforts, are gifts to us for our enjoyment and our refreshment. But when we continually reach for pleasure as a substitute for joy, that's when we're going to run into problems. Again, pleasure itself is not a sin. But it becomes sin when it violates our love of God or love of neighbor or when it becomes destructive. Again, C.S. Lewis wrote, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. What the heart really wants is God. But we so often turn to temporary pleasure, and yes, if we're honest, even sinful pleasure. We turn to affirmation on social media, or the abuse of alcohol, or drugs, or food, or pornography. And these provide temporary pleasure, but ultimately we know that they rob us of joy. Because joy is found in God. So we feel shame and self-hatred and guilt. And then to alleviate that pain and make ourselves feel better, we turn to those same temporary pleasures again. What's to be done? Well, I think part of the invitation to us today is to discover the joy of obedience. And this can't really be done alone. We need the ministry of the body of Christ for this. This probably means that we need to open our struggles up to someone, to confess our sins to someone we trust, to ask for accountability structures in our life. And it's going to be a process. Choosing obedience over pleasure is actually a lifelong process. Another word for it is, or term for it is, the Christian life. (laughs) Choosing obedience over pleasure for the long haul. But this process progressively becoming more like Jesus by grace, is the Christian life. And there's no joy apart from it. So how do, we, how do we cultivate Christian joy according to our text? Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Reject every kind of evil. Now to conclude, I want to briefly look at our gospel reading today as it relates to joy, because I think it's going to wrap things up really well. In John chapter 3... John the Baptist is baptizing. We just read the gospel. And some are still going to him, right? But people are flocking to be baptized by Jesus. John's disciples go to him and say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bear witness, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him now. In other words, he's taking all your disciples. Your ministry is waning. You're becoming irrelevant. You're losing customers. Who are you if you don't come to you to be baptized? You won't be John the Baptist anymore. You'll just be some guy in the desert, alone. Now, from a worldly perspective, this situation should be a joy killer for John, right? His identity is being taken from him. But listen to what he says. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Listen to what he says. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. Incredible. Incredible. In our culture, when we want joy, we're often encouraged to turn inward and to pursue goals for ourselves. If we lack joy, we need self-care or success. We need to take care of our mind and body. We're encouraged to meditate and exercise and eat properly, and we're encouraged to pursue excellence in our field, to gain influence and notoriety. Now, self-care is good and important as far as it goes. I am not knocking self-care. But ultimately, we will not find joy turning inward or seeking to be exalted ourselves. Self-regard, turning inward, focusing on ourselves cannot be the source of joy because joy doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It's a fruit and a gift of God. It's proper to him and not to us. Amazingly, the joy of John the Baptist increases not in relation to his situation increasing, but in relation to Christ increasing. So for my joy to be complete, Christ must increase and I must decrease. Sounds counterintuitive. And I, think, I feel like over the last number of weeks, we've run into any number of Christian paradoxes. This is one of them. It seems counterintuitive, but it's all over the teachings of Jesus. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, unless we die to ourselves, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So, joy doesn't come when we seek joy. It comes as a result of Christ being exalted in us. So, we're called to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances, to reject every kind of evil. Christ must increase, we must decrease. Come, Lord Jesus. I'll conclude by blessing you with a blessing that comes straight out of our epistle today. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you as faithful, and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.